Wave Act, the web-free software company that understands what you want. Hi everyone, welcome at Wave Act. Today with a true legend, Oliver Scherenberg. You may know him. He is the founder and IP licensing counsel at his own company, Scherenberg Legal and Licensing. He also just founded WebFelix, which is nothing else than a big collection of legal resources for Web3. And today we're going to talk about a super exciting and super interesting topic, which is NFTs and intellectual properties. Thank you, Oliver, for being here. And directly starting out, I would love to give you the opportunity to let us a little bit know about WebFelix, what are you up to, and yeah. How does your everyday look like? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you very much for having me, Kevin. It's a real pleasure. And uh, I mean, being introduced as a legend certainly does not do me justice. <laughs> I'm absolutely, you're exaggerating now. But in any event, thank you for having me. And um, I, I'm happy to uh, tell you a little bit about Web3 Legs today, our, our online knowledge base for the Web3 community that we build, which addresses indeed legal questions. Um, maybe I just start a little bit earlier. Why am I here? Why am I doing all this? So uh, my background is being an attorney, an intellectual property focused attorney uh, in Germany. So that is where I'm admitted to the, to the Bar Association. Um, I, I have always had a big interest in monetizing intellectual property rights, uh, which means my entire um, life as an attorney, I have done things like um, patent pools um, that I put together and structured and monetized the patents or standard essential technologies, for example, 3G, 4G, 5G, MP3 in the earlier days, DVB, audio video coding and all of that. That is still a big uh, activity still today. Um, then it is uh, trademarks, for example, um, trademark monetization, co-branding agreements, where one of my biggest clients is the WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. So whenever they have an arrangement with a big company, that they want to have their brand and the Panda logo on their product. That would be an arrangement that I would structure and that I would draft as well. And then uh, the third column, if you so want, is everything that I would put together in one big basket, um, copyright, name right, image rights. So if you have brand endorsement agreements, uh, if you have testimonial agreements, influencer agreements, but also if you have a an author that is doing things like uh, writing books and so on and so forth. So this last part um, um, made me access the Web3 space as well, which means uh, that clients started approaching me uh, because their brand should be used in some sort of metaverse application. Their brand wanted to access the NFT space and so on and so forth. So the reason why I'm telling that a little bit longer is I want to show you that no one starts as a natural Web3 expert as a Web3 attorney even, because that is a space that is relatively new. We have some colleagues that started with ICOs or Bitcoin and crypto. The tax guys are probably the earliest ones because they had to deal with that stuff already years ago. Those who made financial regulations and regulatory law, they were early. So they are the ones that have the most experience. But everyone else who started advising NFTs basically started at the same time as the clients did, so maybe a year ago or so maybe a year and a half, or th those really OG uh, attorneys that advise on the early products uh, and, and projects, maybe a bit earlier. So we started gathering this information for ourselves. And since we thought it is a useful resource to have a couple of questions and answers for that, also in fields of activities that we do not advise on, we, we thought it, it might be useful also for the community to, to publish this repository and this knowledge 
and creating a knowledge database, a knowledge base where we can share this information. So that really has been the first idea, uh, knowing things that you didn't know before, asking people who know it, asking international folks who know it, and that is one of the key figures of this tool. We try to create a network of attorneys, a knowledge base for the folks, and for the attorneys and the tax advisors, also a resource where they can find an equivalent to what they are doing in their national law in other national laws. So please do check it out. Uh, it's web3lex.io. Uh, web uh, it is free for everyone to use. So please give us feedback. We're in beta phase. So we need your feedback. Awesome. Yeah, I just want to highlight that this is a super useful uh, product because um, what is the biggest issue with most uh, NFT and general token projects? Or whenever you want to build something in Web3, you don't know how to deal with it from the legal side. So really take advantage of this um, without advertising it here in any kind of way. It's really a cool tool. And yeah, thank you, Oliver, for sharing this. Um, talking about legal rights, especially when it comes to NFTs, I would be interested, um, or maybe it's useful for the audience itself, um, if we define the term intellectual property itself a little bit to actually know what stands behind this term. Yes, um, I think it is important to make a differentiation what intellectual property is and what we need for the Web3 space and what we do not need. So right now, for most of the NFT-related issues, at least, we need copyright only. So we do not need to deal with patent rights. We do not need to uh, deal with, with uh, trademark rights. That, maybe there is a little overlap. But most of the things we have to do right now is to care about copyrights. And copyrights, in fact, they protect um, the creation of a person, which means um, the, the author or the creator of a creative work will get the reward for its creation because it is something that is coming from the personality of this person and without this person it would have never existed and therefore the law grants this person the exclusive right to use and to monetize whatever they have created and and this is really the entire principle you have to understand behind it it is protecting the creator that's first and foremost what copyright is all about now if you put your copyright so your copyright your creation into a work then you have a physical piece of art for example and this physical piece of art is not the intellectual property. It's a second layer behind the intellectual, be, behind the asset. So you do not actually see the intellectual property. That's one of the reasons why it's called intellectual property. Um, you see a piece of art, for example, and you have to imagine a second layer that is attached to it behind, and that is the right how to use this art. So you can easily transfer and assign rights to the intellectual property but still keep the piece of art. And you could do the other way around. So you could also sell the picture, for example, and keep the intellectual property. And it's really fundamental to understand that you have two different layers that can be separated from each other. And therefore, they, 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 they need to be addressed in two different and indistinct ways. Otherwise, they may fall apart and no one notices that. Well, um, OK, I haven't thought about that, that it's actually uh, that you can still Sure, it, it makes totally sense, right? Um, but it's not something that you really have on the top of your mind if you think about NFTs and IPR, right? It's uh, super interesting. Um, so no wonder that there have been a lot of discussions this year around exactly that topic, right? Do you maybe want to elaborate on that a little bit or how you perceived it yourself? Yes, absolutely, I'd love to. 
Um, I think many of the misconceptions that we that we saw in the space this year came exactly from the misunderstanding that you have only one layer um, and the, the, the lack of understanding that there is a second layer behind the asset which defines the intellectual property rights. I just give you an example. If you buy a work of Andy Warhol or, uh, or Liechtenstein or, or Hundertwasser, for example, um, it would be absolutely clear. So these are artists, well-known artists, at least in, <laughs> here in uh, some of them, maybe more in Europe, but I think they're internationally renowned artists. If you buy a physical piece of art from these artists, you would not assume that you have the right to print T-shirts and sell them as well. You would not have the right to print a catalog or, or, or maybe a, a calendar and sell the calendar. It's kind of obvious for everyone that this is not happening. And for some reason, especially because you know that mostly uh, these artists or their, their heritage or their, their estate, they are doing exactly that. So they are selling merchandise, which is displaying this art, for example. You would immediately get legal trouble if you started selling Andy Warhol, um, like a, a T-shirt with, uh, with Andy Warhol stuff on it, because the copyright still exists. He's not dead long enough that they vanish. Um, so you're, you don't have the right. And you would never think yet they happen. Now, in the NFT space, for some reason, from the beginning, there has, this, there has been this understanding or also this expectation that when you buy an NFT, that you get the right to use the underlying asset, which is the, now the, the, the JPEG, for example, and just use it and monetize it as you, as you see fit. And that, again, misses that there is even a third layer in this case. So with NFTs, from the layers that I mentioned before, you have the first layer in this case, it's the, the asset. Now it's a digital asset. Fair enough. And then you have the second layer. In our case, it is the intellectual property. And now in this particular case of NFTs, you, you have to imagine a third layer, which is the token. And the simple reason why we have this token is because a digital asset could be copied and it would be almost impossible to identify which is, which is the original. And therefore, the token is so important to identify so the, the token layer identifies the authenticity and the original copy of the digital asset. And then it is still the, exactly the same thing, but the intellectual property is not attached to it. And now if you, if you understand that these are, in this case, three different things for digital assets, you have to understand that, again, you have to address the intellectual property part. Otherwise, it will simply come with no intellectual property. And that is what you have to understand as an NFT owner. If you buy an NFT, what you are buying is the token and certain, well, say, say ownership rights to a digital asset. But if the third layer, the intellectual property is not addressed, you're not getting as default. As default, you're getting nothing, no right. You can, you can look at it, that's fine, but you cannot use and commercialize it. Wow, um, that, that brings me to a couple of super, I, I would say, uh, ex <laughs> uh, some extreme uh, points, right? Um, if you think about it, one could theoretically change if it's uh, implemented that way. What kind of image is shown? Maybe the image changes on some kind of properties, right? Um, do you know or do you have some, I don't know, how is that deal dealt with, for example? Yeah, um, that, that is again an interesting question. Now, I would say for this question, we do not even need the layer of intellectual property. Because if you are changing, for example, because the smart contract leads to a website and the website simply the picture is replaced. So what does that mean? Does, does that mean that the token referring to the asset 
now identifies a different asset. So this is the asset that you own now. Or does it mean that the contractual obligation of the NFT project owner to, to link your token to one particular image is now basically in a breach. So they are in a breach of contract because they are changing a picture. You say, I never wanted to own this picture. You told me that when I own the token, that this token refers in an immutable way to one picture. And now you're changing the picture. So that's not what I want to own. I would say that ha that has not necessarily to do with intellectual property, but with contractual law. I didn't buy that, right? So you cannot replace the car that I purchased and come to my house and just put another car there next day. Um, but it's still the asset that I wanted, and it's not anymore connected to the token. It raises a very interesting different question. How is it possible that you exchange the token, uh, or sorry, not the token, but that, that you exchange the underlying asset that is referred to by the token? And it, it should certainly not be possible. Now, we all know, and you're, you know better than I do, that most of the, the assets are not on chain. Um, so they are simply on one, one, one type of a web page. So they could indeed be replaced. Um, that, that has all sorts of super interesting <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and uh, consequences. And it may even be super beneficial for the project owner that he can, for example, if there has been a fraud or a theft or something like that, the board I just because allow me to, to elaborate a little bit on that because it's a super interesting topic I think <clears throat> now in in case the the board a uh, smart contract as far as I know even has the the possibility for the project owner to add further um, to add further assets to the collection uh, which is which is a bit weird but it's it's at least useful in this particular case just imagine someone steals a board ape a particular ape um, and this particular ape now has a like the, the reference uh, website address, for example, in this particular token. That could be replaced by the project owner to display some sort of a, I don't know, a, a dump or whatever, just to show it like a little, some piece of shit or something like that, just to show that this token is actually considered invalid and not part of the collection anymore. And the project owner defines itself, if I replace this picture, I make it worthless. Then again, they issue a new token, giving that to the original owner who was uh, well, who, who, who got the asset stolen, uh, reissue a token, identifying that with a link to the, to the stolen asset, so to say, and by that, in fact, replacing the original one by the original two, and the one who, who stole the original asset has something worthless in its wallet now. But that's it's super complete, complicated and completely different ballgame. I just wanted to follow up with that example because I know you had a very interesting chat with Kier Finlow Bates as well. And I know that he made exactly that example. And that was that is one of the best um, the best things where you can see that the, the law and also what you can do in contract are super smart, uh, smartly uh, combined if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Crazy. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, when we think about that single aspect. Um, I know that basically when we think, for example, about what you just said, by law, in general, everyone is non-guilty, right? So when I think about it from a non-legal perspective, uh, from a legal perspective with my uh, low know-how about it, usually the project owners are not allowed to determine if someone actually stole something, right? And are actually doing uh, break, breaking the contract themselves, right? If yes. they just assume that. 
No, absolutely. And, and the example that I gave is really just the extreme case that only displays that if your smart contract allows you to add things to the collection, that this could be a consequence that you could actually do something like that. I would, I would assume, and I know that there have been many cases that I, apes have been stolen. I think the project owners would, would be ill-advised to actually do that unless there is a really, really safe reason and, and well, case where this has happened in a way where fraud was involved or theft or something like that. Because otherwise, exactly as you say, they may be in a very dangerous spot that people request things like that from them and may be like, causing the next uh, fraud. Um, and, and they should not, uh, let's say a project owner, I think, first of all, should not have the right to add things to the collection. So that's a backdoor that Yuga left uh, themselves that I don't think is super cool, to be honest. Uh, that's the first thing. And the second thing, if they have the backdoor, they shouldn't use it. So absolutely, I'm, I'm with you. I just wanted to give you the, that example um, to showcase that if you have a backdoor like that in a smart contract, if you can add things to a collection, and if you have a link to a token that you can change, that this is a consequence you could do, I would not advise any project owner to actually do it. Just stay out of the dispute of third parties. Okay, that that's interesting now. Um, so, what would you think, for example, if one has a collection where you actually can't remove uh, the item from any holder, right? So that aspect is, is gone, basically. But you could uh, add some new items, which are indeed unique, right? Mm -hmm. Um, would that still be something that you think um, shouldn't be done because it's diluting? Uh, exactly. I think that's that's more again a question of the uh, of the contractual law. So, which expectation do you have as an owner? Just imagine you you mint a one on one one on, one out of one, so an original copy. There is only one, and you pay tons of money to have exactly this piece. And um, the project owner says, this is an original, it will always stay an original, and that's where the value comes from. And maybe a day later, they issue a collection with 10,000 of the same token. That already could be, mm, they, uh, at least I did not have that expectation as the buyer of the original piece. At the same time, if you do not get intellectual property rights, and here where we're back on the intellectual property part, the owner of that original piece only bought the asset, but the project owner, so the one who sold that digital asset, still has the intellectual property rights. So they can, without any problem, issue a collection the next day. Now, that's a different thing if you have a collection of 10,000 pieces that are different, so 10,000 individual pieces, and you know that there is a collection of 10,000 and it is closed. You would not assume that this collection can be extended to 20,000 the next day, because obviously the market price would plummet um, if you have a collection that is scarce, if you have individual rarity traits, for example, and the rarity traits and the scarcity of that project simply change overnight, then the individual assets price will certainly go down. So I think the, the value of, of NFT collections very often comes from the fact that they are scarce, that there is a limited edition, and that you cannot extend that. From a contractual point of view here, I would say, as, an, as a buyer of the NFT, I have the expectation that the collection stays the way it is. Otherwise, as you said, it will be diluted, my value will be diluted, and the collection's price uh, will simply go down. Okay, that's super interesting. Um, so speaking about 
all that, right? Project founders have a lot of things that they, that they need to take care of, um, obviously. Um, how can holders themselves um, somehow protect against these things uh, besides doing proper research? Other things? Mm, I think indeed the most important thing is to look what you are buying, to really check beforehand, do your research and see, read the project terms, read the descriptions of the project by the project owner, maybe even read interviews uh, that, that have been given by the project owners before the launch. So what are their objectives? What are their goals? What do they think that they provide to the community? I give you one example. When we, when we saw the, the Moonbirds, for example, this relatively famous NFT collection, when we saw the Moonbirds um, pre-launch, there was a communication on the website of the Moonbirds that said, you will get the entire IP, the intellectual property right of the NFT will be yours, which means we as the project, we completely abandon our rights. We give them or not abandon, but we will transfer and design them to the owner of the NFT, which means they can do whatever they want with that NFT. We hold back no rights. We cannot do other collections. We cannot influence uh, what rights they will have in the future. That was the communication on the website. The terms and conditions, however, which define in the core of the, uh, the contractual relation between the, the, the seller, now in this case, uh, the project owner and the first, uh, the first buyer who, who minted that collection, they said that you will get the commercial use rights, not even exclusive commercial use rights, but you will get commercial use rights if you buy an NFT. And then a couple of weeks later, so maybe now in this case, uh, the NFT buyer thought, okay, I have the communication. They wanted to give us the entire IP. Now I read that I have use rights. So I would assume what they mean is I have exclusivity. I have only, I'm the only one with the use rights. I have exclusive use rights and so on. A couple of weeks in, however, um, the, the project owners, um, they made a decision to abandon the entire intellectual property rights for the entire collection by declaring that all the collection is put under Creative Commons Zero license. Creative Commons Zero is a, uh, it's a standard, so to say, which defines that the owner of the IP completely abandons the IP by offering a free license for everyone who wants to use it which means everyone can use it without, the, without having to ask the owner of the NFT, without ask, having to um, ask uh, the owner of, um, of, the, uh, of the collection. Um, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in a very strange spot if you bought that NFT, assuming that you have the IP, so no one else can make a decision whether IP should be abandoned or not, or at least you thought you have the exclusive right to use it, and now, all of a sudden, everyone else can use it. And I know of people who were in advanced discussions for uh, for monetization, which means they created, um, they wanted to create collections of T-shirts of whatever. Uh, they had uh, people who wanted to take a license to use the Moonbird, and all of a sudden, all this becomes worthless completely because no one needs to take a license and pay the owner of the NFT if they can use the image themselves, right? So the people who had the NFT really are, are kind of screwed because they bought into something expecting they have the full rights or at least some rights. And now they find themselves in the position everyone else has the same rights and they cannot at least not monetize that asset anymore. And coming back to your original question, sorry for a little detour now, but you say do your own research means yes, absolutely. They did their research. Uh, what they end up now is uh, in a situation where 
everyone else can use it. And if they, if they can not rely on the statements on the website and what is said in, uh, in the terms and conditions, they may find themselves in a disappointment now. And now comes the lawyer again and says, well, what exactly did you read? Because the terms and conditions, they say you have a non-exclusive right. You still have that non-exclusive right. The fact that you have a non-exclusive right simply says everyone else or, or further licenses can be granted. Your terms and conditions define that only these terms and conditions are relevant. So whatever was said before or after does not matter. So what is said on the website may create some sort of expectation, but the terms and conditions are what counts. So you got exactly what you wanted. You have a non-exclusive license. You still have it. If you have financial expectations attached to your NFT, we, we excluded liability for that. So I'm afraid if you think you're screwed, but you're not. That is what could happen as well. So oh. that, that was just an example. Sorry for yeah. taking a little bit more time of uh, explaining that. No, it uh, was super interesting. Uh, I would have some uh, questions regarding that, but I don't want to make the episode too long. Um, I think one thing that would be relevant around IPR in general is law itself is super regional, right? And it differs from state to state. And um, I would be curious, how is it regarding IPR rights themselves, right? Are there some major differences when project owners are in the US, in Germany, whatsoever? What should one uh, be aware of? Yes, um, indeed, there is no Lex Metaverse or no Web3 Lex law, so to say, that counts for all jurisdictions at the same time. And until we have something like that, and it, it may be very useful to think about a solution where we have a standard or we have some sort of a borderless law that would work for, for every case in the metaverse or in, in Web3 applications, until today, we do not have that, which means national laws will apply. National laws define how cases are treated. And indeed, if the national law in the US, for example, defines something completely differently then it does that in the, in Germany or in France, for example, then that can be a conflict and that is an issue. So typically, if you have a situation where you do not know which law applies, you either need to find an attachment point, which means, for example, buyer and seller are both in the US. So you probably um, use US law or the project is in the US and therefore defines the terms and conditions. So there is a certain expectation that you may apply US law. At the same time, if you are a buyer on the secondary market and the seller is also on the second, uh, outside, of, uh, outside of the US, for example, completely different laws may apply. And until we have a unified and, and codified, standardized, whatever law for the entire, um, for the entire world or virtual world, um, we will need to accept that there are differences. And indeed, there are differences. Again, an example, if you have a US case where you define, I will transfer the entire intellectual property right with the NFT, for example, then that is something you can decide in the US. You can define that you completely transfer the entire copyright. That is not possible in European countries. In most of the European jurisdictions, you cannot transfer the IP itself because there is always a certain portion of the moral rights. And that is that goes back to the very beginning of our, of our recording, where I said, a creation is always um, the expression of an individual artist, which means this individual artist will always be attached to the art. And that moral right embedded in the art, that intellectual property part, 
cannot be abandoned. So the artist will always stay attached to it and you cannot cut it, which means transferring the entire IP does not work. It's simply void if you do that. Now you can interpret that this means I want to go to the furthest uh, extent possible by law, but that's, that's a conflict that I was showing. You have international treaties harmonizing parts of intellectual properties, but until we have exactly the same situation in the US, in Canada, in Brazil, in Nigeria, and in Germany, that will take a long time. And until then, we are left in a state of uncertainty. So you better know the basic principles of some different jurisdictions so you can better judge if there is a risk. Um, and that is why I, that's one of the reasons why I created this international network and Web3 Lex, because you can combine and compare these national laws. If you have one question, you can, can compare, uh, combine uh, the different national laws and the answers and can really compare them one next to the others. Um, but when we think about contracts themselves, usually there's always a paragraph that uh, all kind of disputes are held in the US, are held in I don't know where, right? Um, doesn't that work for NFTs themselves as well? Um, already these clauses that you try to define which law applies and which jurisdiction applies or where to go to court, um, most, most national laws do not accept such a uh, definition for consumers, which means if you write in your agreement, if you buy this, you are subject to US law and you can only have arbitration in New York, for example, or you have to litigate uh, in Delaware. Um, as a German consumer, I would say, well, I don't care. That's not the case. I'm here in Germany and maybe therefore I would go to court, to court in Germany, for example. Um, at the same time, if you are uh, defining things in terms and conditions, maybe the person who minted the NFT is attached and, and has, to, um, well, has to accept these terms and conditions before the minting, but already the secondary buyer doesn't even know these terms and conditions because that's another legal issue. They're typically not attached to the NFT, but they can be found on a project website. And the secondary sales uh, person, the secondary owner, secondary buyer, never clicked anywhere to accept these terms and conditions. So if I buy that piece of property from as a, as a German uh, buyer, I buy that NFT from another German seller, I would assume that I didn't care, I couldn't care less if a US company way before in the chain of title defined which law shall apply for any dispute. I don't care, that doesn't matter, maybe, maybe it does matter. And these are exactly the things that are not entirely certain at this stage. We do not have a lot of um, litigation going on. The, the, the cases that we know typically have a relatively clear cut and definition. There is a US party here, US party there, project owner there, and then you know it. But very often you will not even know where to go, whom to sue, where to do it. And this is one of the exciting things uh, in Web3 law that there is so much to discover. And that's one of the reasons because um, that's one of the reasons why we think that no time soon we will uh, be out of business. <laughs> Uh, super exciting. Um, yeah, Oliver, I have one last question for you, um, if that's okay. Um, are there some, because what I know is custom licenses are usually a little bit tricky, right? They're not battle tested, usually on court. They are not, uh, you, you don't usually really know what that license actually says, right? And how it applies. But are there some battle-tested or more proven licenses 
uh, which are usually, as you said, described in a single three-digit term or something like that, right? which really have a name, a standard, that you can recommend somehow to be somehow battle-tested throughout mm. the world. Um, battle-tested, I have to say, I'm not aware of many cases that that have gone to court where we have a final decision that one clause works and one other clause does not, or one provision is valid and the other is not. Um, having said that, we are still in an early phase of development and everything we can do as intellectual property attorneys is to use clauses that we used before for other uh, monetization situations. and and hope that we were smart enough to adapt them to blockchain technology and to the use cases and to digital assets and to all these different aspects that we mentioned before. So having said that, I know that there are a couple of standards out there. Some of them are, for example, Creative Commons. Uh, others were just uh, recently published by Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, for example, they provided a set of, of standard documents. Many of them are very sophisticated and very elaborated and address many of the aspects that we need to deal with in a very precise way, especially the last ones from Andreessen Horowitz. And at the same time, some of them still are maybe not working in the same way as they are working in the US, because as I said, the principle of abandoning the IP or, or transferring the IP do not work in other jurisdictions. And at the same time, I would, for example, not be very happy as a European company um, having my, my project in Germany, for example, and addressing the German market in particular, to use a standard license template that, uh, that uh, sends me to arbitration in New York as a default. Um, so some of these templates are great, others are not so great, I think others need more improvement. Many of the legacy projects don't even have uh, terms and conditions. I mean, it says something that the CryptoPunks and the Mebits just published their uh, their their license terms, I think maybe a month ago, um, and before that they simply didn't have any, um, or the ones that they had maybe were just uh, just outspoken but not um, not written down anywhere. We're still in a phase of development uh, right now. We typically advise clients on an individual basis to really address the cases that they have. Um, one project is not like the other, so you may have some standards you can refer to, but. At the current stage, we're more into individual um, consulting more than uh, using standard templates. I think the most, the bigger problem is that they're not visible, that it is not easy to detect the terms and conditions. They're not displayed on OpenSea, for example, right now. We, we're missing a button where it says use rights or commercialization rights. These rights typically can only be found on the project website. So you have to Google it. You risk ending up on a scam page. You risk ending up on an old page. Um, and as long as we don't, do not have a reliable uh, connection between the use rights and the NFT or the use rights on chain, there are a lot of solutions providing that, but the legacy uh, project don't have that. We will still um, end up more in individual consulting. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, luckily there are already some NFT marketplaces, at least on Solana, as far as I know, that actually try to link the license to uh, the NFT. I think it's Solsi, but I'm not sure. There are definitely more about that. There are a couple of good uh, projects doing exactly that. So for the future projects, fantastic. Uh, let's support that. That's a great. Uh, that's a great initiative. Awesome. Hey, um, uh, Oliver. Really, I could talk uh, hours around uh, those kind of topics. Uh, super, super interested in that. But um, thank you, really, for taking the time 
um, really appreciate that. Is there anything that you want the viewers to know? Otherwise, I would say thank you for being here. I want to. I want them to know that they should listen to your podcast because they're fantastic. <laughs> you're such a pleasant guy, and you're so interested and so knowledgeable about smart contracts. There is there are few resources I go to um, when I really want to learn more, and your podcasts and your your Twitter spaces or your LinkedIn spaces are really my go-to resource. So that's my only recommendation uh, to close this uh, recording. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Wow, thank you, means a lot. Thank you everyone for watching. WaveAct, the web-free software company that understands what you want.